1: Welcome to the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we are here. The off season has started, and we are we are rolling with off season content. Uh, we got got a couple big news bites that we're going to take today. Uh, the first is that you might have heard last week, uh, UCLA and USC announced they were leaving the Pac-12 to join the Big Ten. So we're going to dive into what that means uh, from a baseball perspective. And then we are going to run through uh, as much of the the coaching changes as we can to this point. There have been uh, 37 uh, jobs that have come open uh, among head coaches in in Division 1 college baseball here uh, so far this year. Most of them are filled, not quite all of them. Uh, but we're gonna gonna run through the the highlights of that. The kind of strange thing about it's not unique to baseball. This happens in in basketball and several other college sports as well. But the postseason and the hiring uh, cycle they completely overlap basically. And so we were very focused on on the actual baseball that was being played and not so focused on on the job changes. We might have very casually mentioned here or there that uh this coach got fired or, or that coach left for that job but uh we didn't really get to to dive into that so that's what we want to do here today uh talk about some of the the biggest jobs that changed hands uh so far this summer and again there, there's still some jobs open and uh that probably would be true no matter when we did this but we wanted to get this in now because before long we'll be talking about the draft uh so you know we'll uh if notre dame hires a coach in two weeks, maybe we'll, uh, we'll we'll talk about about it then or whatever. Uh, but for now, we're we're going to focus on the jobs that that we can focus on and and the uh, the latest round of of conference realignment. Um, so we'll get to all of that here uh, today on the the Baseball America College Podcast. Hopefully, everyone has enjoyed the start of their offseason, the Fourth of July weekend, and, and the rest of that. And, and Joe, I'm I'm sure that uh, that you did.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was good. It was good to have felt like um, a little sliver of time, even though I spent part of Fourth of July weekend out at Durham Bulls Athletic Park and at the Team USA complex watching the collegiate national team. Um, You know, that's obviously a little bit of a more relaxed atmosphere, you know, especially coming off of being in Omaha. So um, it has been nice to have a little bit of decompressed time and and that kind of continues as the summer goes on. Like there's still obviously plenty of stuff we're working on in the background, but it's a little less. Little less than it is during the obviously during the post season, which is the, the heaviest time of year. So that was kind of nice. Um, I did not engage in any fireworks, so I have all my fingers. Um, I don't know if you've seen that um video going around this morning as we're recording, uh, <laughs> from like a and I shouldn't laugh because like there are real like fireworks are just inherently dangerous. And I grew up in Texas where you can buy, you know, like basically like weapons grade fireworks at the stand on the side of the road. Um, and not understanding how dangerous they were as i like haphazardly lit them in my driveway as a 10 year old or whatever but there is a danger there but there's this the viral video i don't know if you've seen of of somebody having a mishap at a family gathering with a lit firework and basically it goes off in such a way that it ignites all of their fireworks they haven't lit yet which are sitting like underneath the bumper of a car so they're all exploding underneath the side of a car so it it appears that there wasn't anything super tragic happening there but it is a nice reminder that uh the July 4th is is one of our more dangerous holidays.
1: Are you a hot dogs or a hamburgers person on July 4th?
2: Um you know, I guess I don't really have a huge preference there. I mean, just in my life I prefer burgers over hot dogs, but I think that has a lot to do with the fact that you know, you go to a restaurant, right, and right, like, you're yeah, not you ordering know, a a hot dog at a restaurant. Right, you're not getting hot dogs on the menu. Yeah, so like I guess for the novelty, like, I guess I'd go hot dog. It feels more closely. So though I prefer a burger and I'm not turning down a burger, I guess for the holiday I'll go hot dog just because it's, it is a, uh, thanks to uh, Joey Chestnut and um, Kobayashi through the years, uh, the link between July 4th and hot dogs has never been stronger. It's also infinitely
1: easier to cook a hot dog than a hamburger. Like if you're having people over or just a casual grill out situation, like, I mean, you can sit there and make a really nice burger. But like if you're just trying to like if you have like half a dozen people over and you're trying to make burgers, like first of all, people want them cooked differently. And uh, it's just way more of a production. So I, I appreciate the uh, the ease of the hot dog. I mean, I like hot dogs generally, but I, I appreciate the ease in, in that setting.
2: Yeah, you're more you're more heating hot dogs, whereas you're actually yes. having to cook burgers to temperature and. manage not getting them charred. And yeah, you're right. There, there is a simplicity to, to the hot dog for sure. If I was running my own July 4th, get together, it would be hot dog heavy. I can tell you that.
1: Yeah. I I say that I, I like the ease as if I was the one at the get together that was cooking the hot dogs. Like I was not, I, I made the pasta salad, but anyway, um, 4th of July, we, uh, we enjoyed it. Hopefully you did, uh, as well. Uh, right before the holiday weekend happened and because the fourth was on a Monday, it was a, it was a nice long weekend for everyone. Uh, college sports decided that they were not going to take a holiday weekend, or at least not in in the relaxed holiday weekend traditional sense, because on June 30th, which, and it happened on June 30th for a reason, um, or the first, whatever day it was, um, USC and UCLA comes out uh, that they are, in discussions with the Big Ten to leave the Pac 12 and, and join the Big Ten. They both have been members of whatever the Pac 12 has been since the 20s. The name the conference has undergone some changes and name changes along the way. But since the 20s, they've been a part of this conference that 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 has become the Pac 12. And now they are preparing to leave. And that broke around one in the afternoon. Uh, Eastern time. And by the end of the night, not even by, by like late evening, it was official that these schools were in the big 10 that was spectacularly fast. Uh, They'd done clearly done a lot of work behind the scenes and kept it very quiet before it broke, uh, which is very unlike every other round of conference realignment we've uh, we've gone through Texas and, and Oklahoma broke. And it was like a month before Things became official last year. This was different, and uh, it was uh, it was pretty jarring to see two brands like that, uh, two programs, two institutions leave the Pac-12 for the Big Ten, uh, and especially so when you consider the fact that uh, geography is a real thing, and um, you know they're now the the Big Ten map looks a lot like uh, the Major League Baseball map in the 1950s looked uh, after the giants and and the dodgers left for california uh so that that's the the coming reality of of the big 10 it, it'll happen in a couple of years um we can dive into all sorts of angles on this from a, a broader angle to just what it means for baseball and, but joe uh, what what were your initial thoughts as, as this is all all taking place
2: my initial thought was wow and that was, that was actually it. It was just, wow. I, I think that's actually I, I, what you slacked me. <laughs> I, um, so I saw a tweet from John Wilner, and I, I try to, to, um, consciously not be sits on Twitter all day guy. Cause that can be really easy to just like slip into that. I mean, like scrolling on social media is very much like a thing that people, whatever the social media of choice is. And ostensibly Twitter is part of our job insofar as we have to tweet links. You know, we, 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 Try to keep up with breaking news, et cetera, et cetera. But I try not to just be on there all day. So I'll close it out periodically. But anyway, so I saw John Wilner, who broke this news, who works for Bay Area News Group. He's probably the preeminent Pac-12, actually I say confidently the preeminent Pac-12 newsbreaker insider guy out there when he says it, it's a thing. And so he tweets like that morning, I think the world is about to change. And I thought, and I saw that in real time. And I thought that's weird. Like I thought, you know, we're living in a time when people are are making like subtle or sometimes not so subtle comments about things going on in politics or whatever else. And so I thought like, maybe it's something like that. Like, I don't know what, and it turns out, obviously it was, it was this. And so now, you know, I can circle back, you know, hours later and was like, here, here we are. Um, It's hard to like really do a lot of projecting because like while we can guess we don't know with any certainty what the big 10 is actually going to be like once usc and ucla arrive um we can make some educated guesses but to sit here and like really game it out is is kind of a fool's errand because we we i don't think we really know i mean everything we thought we realignment has gotten sped up to a point where everything we kind of thought we knew about what is and isn't and how these things are going to work has, has largely been kind of taken away. And there are some guardrails. We won't get to, this is not a business podcast, so I assume we won't get too deep in the weeds here, but like things like grant of rights, you know, kind of locks ACC teams theoretically into it. Although now we're, you know, teams are starting to kind of wiggle around there. Um, But so all of the guardrails we thought were in place that would keep things from happening or keep things in place, like those have just been taken away. And what, what we're finding out is like schools, in the, in the name of, I mean, money, just to put it bluntly, but in the name of survival, uh, better TV deals, more visibility, all that kind of stuff, are just going to figure out a way to do it. And they're they're going to make it happen. And sometimes it's easy, like US, USC and UCLA, the timing of such is that they're really not going to have a lot of friction in leaving the Pac-12 to go to the Big Ten. But even in, in cases where there is a little more friction, like the school, I'm confident at this point, the schools are just going to find a way. They're going to lawyer up and spend a little money, spend a little money to make a little money. Um, and they're just going to uh, d- do what it is that they will do to be best for their survival. And it's uh, the last thing I'll say big picture before we move on is just like, I think we've all seen, I mean, you can really go back to maybe not the like 2011 realignment. I don't know if exactly 2011, but that range when, you know, you got Mizzou and AM to the sec. And there was the brief talk of it being a PAC 16 that involved Oklahoma state and Texas tech and yada, 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 that whole stuff. I don't know if you could have pinpointed it then, but certainly when we started getting the dominoes after that, we've all kind of looked around and gone like, Oh, so like where we're really heading here is we've always used the term super conferences and it's a little more nuanced than that now, I think. Um, but we've all kind of known we've been heading this way and just to see it like play out every couple of years in somewhat slow motion is kind of a wild thing in hindsight because that is where we're heading and we've kind of all known it and there's really not a lot anyone's been able to do about it try as they might by the way um and, and, and we're, we're, we're ever closer and, and we don't really know when the endpoint is exactly and there's a lot of guessing going on we don't really know though but we just know that's where it's going and this just is what it is i do
1: you think the drip drip of realignment is probably not positive for anyone that it would be better if everyone could just do everything at once, but the, uh, contracts are what they are. And so they can't, not everyone can move when they want to move. And so this is, this is what we get instead. And we get a lot of hand wringing now, every year, every couple of years about like, what does this all mean? And like, is this good and blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, whatever at this point, I I'm, I'm past all of that. Um, now that's easy for me to say as somebody that isn't a fan of a smaller program that is clearly about to be left behind or whatever. But um, you know, I, I could do with like fifty percent less hand about uh, college sports realignment. The conferences are what they are, and uh, you know, whatever. Uh, that's just where I have come to over the last decade. It was very exciting a decade ago, and now it's very much just like, can we just get to where we're going, please? Uh, but I understand why it doesn't work like that. And I understand why people are fighting to preserve parts of the status quo or as much of the status quo as they can. So uh, we, we will see where this all heads in terms of uh, the eventual um, you know potential of, of just there being a, a power two or whatever instead of a power five. Um, for now, in the more short to medium term what this means for ucla and usc and the big 10 and the pac-12 i mean i I have seen a lot of doomsday scenarios for ucla out of this this is a a program that we're talking about you know they won a national title in 2013 they've been the number one overall seed in the ncaa tournament twice since then Uh, they've been to omaha four times under john savage like they are. A really big deal in college baseball, even if they haven't been to Omaha since um, since they won that national title. And there's a lot of concern that now they're joining this conference in the Big Ten that is, air quotes, cold weather. Um, I mean, like, yes, it is cold, but you know what else is cold? Pullman, Washington, and Corvallis, Oregon, and Salt Lake City. So. I don't care so much about the cold weather aspect of it. I do think the the travel aspect, the fact that four or five times a year, depending on how many conference games the Big 10 plays uh, and how they set their schedule up. And you know that's something that I'll be very interested in moving forward, how they, they look to do that. Uh, when they announced this move, both UCLA and USC mentioned how the Big 10 is Interested in working with them about creative travel structures or creative scheduling, and we'll see what that means for from a baseball perspective uh, if they can curtail some of the the cross country flights. Because right now UCLA basically they don't come east. Like they they might come they might go to the central time zone, maybe like they were in Houston this year. But even that's pretty rare. Uh, they they're going to log a lot more miles. So what does that mean for recruiting? Uh, I remember when Jim Penders came on the podcast here and talked about UConn's return to the big East, how going back to, to, you know, conference opponents going back to rivals that players in the Northeast really understood like, okay, like St. John's Georgetown, like we get that. Um, those are, those are programs we're used to watching and, um, you know, we're familiar with versus like when UConn was in the American and they were playing Tulane and Central Florida just didn't have the same resonance for them um but I, I I so I think that that might matter a little bit but as long as UCLA continues to be the pro development factory that it has been under John Savage like I think that that is the primary factor in recruiting um you know we can we can talk about all of the other various components of it but one of the biggest things is can you help me develop and as long as john savage continues to be good at that and his staff continues to be good at that i think ucla will be fine yes this might help um some sec schools get into the la and and other california areas but like look they're already there and they already can recruit against ucla and pac-12 schools with their massive uh, fan bases and stadiums and the success in the NCAA tournament, like if that's who you are as a recruit, if that's what you care about, um, you're already pretty interested in playing in the SEC and UCLA leaving the Pac-12, uh, I don't think has hardly any effect on that. So we'll see how that plays out. I I will be curious uh, from a recruiting standpoint where it goes for UCLA, but the last thing I'll say about them is that We've seen, you know, think about what ECU is in the American, what UConn has become in the Big East almost immediately. Like they, they are the, they just boss those conferences right now. Nobody, nobody is there to play a reasonable foil with either program in, in this moment. Now, eventually, maybe some school will step up and challenge ECU in the American or challenge UConn in the Big East. The Big Ten has no, has no program that is ready to challenge UCLA today. Now, in two years when they enter, like, we'll see where where Maryland, where Michigan, uh, where Nebraska, where Ohio State, where Indiana, where those programs are at. But today, nobody can challenge them. And that doesn't mean anything bad for UCLA. I mean, we still see East Carolina consistently host regionals. We see UConn consistently make regionals. I don't think anything really has to materially change for UCLA just because they're entering a conference that is regularly rated worse than the Pac-12 and RPI, except that maybe they need to schedule their non-conference just a little bit better than they do right now.
2: There's been, the the travel piece has been interesting to me because a lot of people have latched on and I get it because it's like the extreme geography of it, but people have really latched on to like the Rutgers making trips to LA or vice versa. And it's like, well, let me tell you two cities I know you can get to in a direct flight. I'd be more interested in you know USC or UCLA having to fly to Chicago and then hopping on a bus to drive two hours through some of the absolute most boring terrain our country has to offer to go play at Illinois. You know, like those are the trips that I actually think, or you know, or Bloomington, how do you get Indiana, to state college. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes, those are the ones that I think are actually more of a concern here because those are taxing trips because that's a long. Don't get me wrong, LA to New York is a very long flight. But and also LA like is,
1: you do still have to hop on a bus to get to Piscataway. Like the for sure. the LA yes, to for DC sure. to to go to College Park is like very simple. Uh but the the Rutgers trip does require a bit of a bus ride after you fly into Newark.
2: For sure. Um at least you got something to look at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um the, the so Illinois the, just it,
1: catching strays here.
2: Uh, yeah, well, you know it's it's one of those it's one of those deals where it's like uh, you know having having lived there, I feel like I've I earned the and by the way, <laughs> did not live in the Chicago part of Illinois, lived in the part of Illinois of which I am I am denigrating a little bit. Um, I feel like I know of that of which I, I've earned the right to speak about it uh, that way. That uh, it's just uh, you know and it's it's a lot of people love living there, but I mean it's just not a lot going on. Like I, th- I don't think anybody would really argue the the stretch of I fifty seven between Chicago and Illinois, uh, Champaign, Illinois. Not a lot going on. Um, regardless, I think this is a good reminder too, of when we talk about the travel piece and like, yes, they have some assurances have been given now. We don't know if that means uh, scheduling wise, like we'll try to game the schedule to the point where you'll make fewer cross-country trips, or if they mean like chartering, right? That, That could mean either things or something in between, but regardless of what that actually looks like in practice, I think this all of this stuff is kind of a reminder of the big picture we're looking at here. And we obviously know the big picture here because like this move would not have been made if baseball was the primary driver or maybe, maybe it would be, but you know what I mean though? Like it is not in this case. We know that. However, you know, Martin Jarmond at UCLA has come out and kind of more or less said, like we were looking at cutting sports if we did not make this move. Now they're probably not talking about baseball there, but UCLA is a proud athletic department that has a lot of good teams. They were probably going to have to cut a program that's won a lot of games or matches or whatever it is. Um, so that's the big picture we're talking about. So like from their standpoint, they're looking at like, OK, yeah, you, you might have to make four or five flights a year. that are going to be a little uncomfortable, are going to take a little while. But the alternative here was actually more costly. And that's that we were going to have dozens, if not hundreds of student athletes that could no longer compete at UCLA because we were going to have to cut sports
1: yeah and and that is in some ways makes them a lot like maryland when maryland joined the league and at the time was a geographic outlier they were looking at uh, a significant deficit in their athletic budget and uh the big 10 and its revenues gave them a lifeline um so that that's kind of where ucla is at usc is in a different stand uh different situation uh both financially and uh in terms of, of baseball this is a school or a, th- this is a baseball program that has done just nothing just absolutely historically nothing for going on 15 20 years now in the Pac 12. And so they're dealing with all of the negatives that that UCLA is right now but like I, I just almost feel like well okay but nothing in the Pac 12 worked. They're they are on their fifth coach. They just hired Andy Stankiewicz over the weekend. They're on their fifth coach since they fired uh, skip gillespie 15 years ago and they have like one ncaa tournament to show for that and it's not even that they're like finishing in the heart of the pack like in the middle of the pack 12 and they bubble out like they have multiple last place finishes in the pack 12 like things are just not working for them in the pack 12 and it's to the point where i i look at it and i'm like well maybe this will be the easier runway for USC to get back just to making regionals we can talk about like is this good for them if they want to go back to winning championships or going to Omaha regularly later right now USC is at a point where as a baseball program they just need to consistently make regionals and they're entering a conference where yes there's a lot of travel uh but they will have a weather and recruiting advantage over everyone but UCLA and maybe maybe that's a good thing for for the Trojans baseball program
2: no, I, I'm with you generally. Like, I think this is a little bit reminiscent of when Nebraska, and this, that one made a lot of sense geographically. It's different in that way. But when Nebraska joined the Big Ten out of the Big 12, um, you know, now they also hired Darren Erstad, and that was a positive, no matter how you feel about the Erstad tenure generally, like that in the moment was a good hire, got them back on track. That was part of it too. But I also think they got back into the Big Ten, which is a conference kind of more where the baseball program was at that time and really kind of got them back on track and got them going and got them out of a league where they were, you know, making long trips down to Texas to take on teams that by that point they were outmatched by. And so that going to the big 10, I think gave them a chance to kind of catch their breath and realign literally and figuratively, I guess. And now, you know, they're, they're in a 2022 being a tough year, notwithstanding they're in a much better place than they were to where, even if somebody dropped into the big 12 today, they would not be just by definition out of place. So um, I kind of compare it to that where it feels like this is now, Again, very different geographically, but this is an opportunity for USC to, you know, you're right. Nothing in the Pac-12 has worked. Let's shake it up. Let's try something different. And like, yes, there will be some weird travel going on, but they will just on the type of talent they've been bringing in year after year alone. Like they should be able to compete at a better, at a higher level, just right away in the Big Ten. And will that equal regional appearances? Like we don't know, mostly because we're still talking several years away, but um, I certainly like their chances a little more than what they're looking at in the Pac-12 right now
1: misspoke it's usc's fifth coach since they went to omaha um so that includes years under skip uh but like the larger point remains they things have not gone well for them in the last 20 years they have two regional appearances to show for it like so uh they're gonna try something Dan hubs is the only yeah
2: dan hub's the only one of those coaches like we talked about offline the only one to last longer than three years it's it's remarkable
1: and so now they're going to try something new and baseball had nothing to do with the reason why they're getting to try something new, but now they get to try something new Uh, from a big 10 standpoint. Look, you just added one of the better programs in the country and also a program that has the most national championships in the country. Um, Hopefully this could mean something positive for baseball in the big 10, but if it's going to mean something positive for baseball in the big 10, the conference is gonna to have to kind of change the way it views baseball. And look, maybe by adding LA schools, it will help them do that. But I don't think you can expect just because this happened that all of a sudden the Big 10 is going to sit here and be like, well, now we are all in on baseball. What I would hope that happens is that there are there's an expectation that within the next few years the as the Big 10 uh, gets into a new um, TV deal. The, the conference is going to be distributing more than $100 million per year per school. The conference has al- always been pretty rich, and they're, they have done a good job over the last decade plus at investing in infrastructure. There have been a lot of ballparks built in the Big Ten. Um, you, know, you look at Indiana, Purdue. Uh, several other places have, have had real renovations. Minnesota had a pretty significant renovation. There's been a lot of infrastructure investment. Now is the time to make the people investment, to invest in coaches. There are good coaches in the Big Ten. You know, you just this year had Eric Bakich leave for Clemson. Uh, a couple of years ago, you had John Sheff leave Maryland for Virginia Tech. This this kind of thing happens in the Big Ten. Chris Lamonis left Indiana for, for Mississippi State. If you can get the investment Right, so that they don't feel like they're having to make the move for for money reasons. You know, maybe some of those coaches leave anyway. But if you can invest in them, invest in their staffs, and you know, provide the student athletes with what they need, you know, give the players um you know, whatever monetary compensation is legal at the time, uh, that, that is where the Big Ten now needs to to move with this because. You you have a chance to be a much better baseball league with USC and UCLA in the mix than you do without them. But just adding LA schools and adding an LA recruiting base is not going to do it on its own. You you also have to have to make the necessary investment. And there are a lot of sports in the Big Ten that need investment, right? Like everyone needs needs this money or, or thinks they need they have they will be able to use whatever money you are providing with them. They all have wish lists, but if you want to be good at baseball you have to invest in baseball and the big 10 scene the the if you invest in in the facilities they they've seen improvement from that well now it's now it's time for the next level investment in investment from the uh, from the conference standpoint and also from the school standpoint
2: yeah i think that's right uh, yeah just just briefly on that i mean i think that's exactly right i get asked I still do a decent amount from having lived in the Midwest, as I alluded to, like I still do a decent amount of like radio and stuff in the Midwest. And I get asked quite a bit actually about, okay, we like know that the big 10 has reached this platform baseball wise. It's better than it was, you know, now, I guess now we're looking at more like 15 years ago. No, I guess still 10 years ago, because that predates Indiana being in Omaha. So in the last 10 years, big 10 baseball has elevated, but like what's next. And that's kind of the answer I give is that, okay, you've you invested like crazy in infrastructure. Like you alluded to it. It's, it's new stadiums. It's, you know, Illinois is just now breaking ground on a, on a practice facility. Northwestern has a, a rebuilt facility. Um, you know, Rutgers obviously doesn't have the actual playing facility, but they haven't a, a good practice facility. So you've done all of this stuff and it, I don't want to say they just rested on their laurels, but it kind of felt like they're at that point, it kind of stopped and you're looking at now, you um, you know Eric Bakich obviously leaves the conference like Rob Vaughn's name was out there for uh, for openings this offseason like I don't think but he did sign know, the
1: extension so that was He did sign pause. an extension
2: uh, yeah, for sure but the big change is to the point where like there is no job there that is so good right now that you're that uh, co- other conferences coming for your coaches is going to make you feel like those coaches are safe there outside of the the guys who are super tenured like I don't I don't think John Anderson is leaving for an SCC job anytime soon but um so there, it is kind of time for the Big Ten to redouble its efforts in some ways, it feels like. Um, and some of that is just prisoner of the moment stuff, because 2022, outside of Maryland having the season it had, a regular season it had, outside of that, it was just kind of like a meh season in the Big Ten. And so some of that is prisoner of the moment, I think, me feeding off of that. But I do think it is kind of time for the league to redouble its efforts a little bit and find other ways to invest maybe this is a little bit of a catalyst and an opportunity to kind of be ready to hit the ground running once they enter the conference. And and you'd kind of laid out the ways in which they could do that.
1: From a PAC 12 perspective, uh, this is obviously causing a lot of existential questions at a conference level. And so we're not going to, I don't want to dive into this too much because we'll just have to wait and see whether the PAC 12 is able to survive and what it looks like if they do survive. Uh, But I will say this, that if what the Pac-12 does is either find a way to stand pat with 10 teams or, you know, largely what the Big 12 did a year ago, just find a way to keep everyone together, whether that means expansion or, or not. Um, the Pac-12 is the pack, whatever they would be, call it the Pac-10, I guess. The Pac-10, as it stands today, just subtracting UCLA and USC, it's still a really good baseball league. You've got Stanford, which just was in Omaha. You've got Arizona, which was in Omaha a year ago. You've got Oregon State, which hosted a super regional this year. And you know, we know what Oregon State is, three national titles this century. Um, you know, Washington has been to Omaha within the last five or six years. Oregon hosted a regional a year ago. We know what the the ceiling there looks like generally. Um Arizona State has plenty of reasons to believe why it won't be down forever, or at least that that there will be a rebound there sooner or later. That is a good conference. That's still better than what the Big Ten is today. I mean, you're still one of the major leagues. The The challenge, of course, is going to be, well, okay, but nobody really cares about what it means for baseball. It's, it's about what it means for, for revenues and what this means for football and, and all the rest of it. But if this group holds together, it's still a fantastic baseball league, even without L.A. uh, It doesn't help their recruiting that they're not going to L.A. annually like that is that is going to hurt. But I think that's the way on the field where it hurts the most for for baseball in the conference.
2: I know. Yeah, I don't know what the best answer is for the Pac-12 in the long term. I know the answer is not this like loose partnership idea with the ACC. Like, <laughs> let me tell you what has not worked in the history of college athletics. And that's like real loose. Like, I don't mean this in the Wait, terms so of you mean, that like is the, the alliance. Defense. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Like I can tell you precisely what has not worked in trying to protect yourself from being poached. And that is loose partnerships. So like get that idea straight out of here. And like, I get that what they're trying to do is entice media networks to like up the ante on the, the the TV money. It's not actually like any sort of, it, it's just kind of a, I don't want to say a ploy that implies that it's like underhanded in some way, but it's like, they're trying to find ways to get more money out of TV networks and a PAC 12 ACC title game maybe is theoretically one way to do that. But that is, that is, that is not the answer. I'm here to tell you. I don't, I'm not a fancy consultant who charges millions of dollars. Although I can send you my Venmo if you'd like to send that to me. Um, but that is, that is not the answer folks.
1: So we'll uh, we'll continue to monitor the realignment situation. There's a lot of talk about can the Big Twelve grab some of these schools? What happens to Oregon and Washington? Is the Big Ten done? Blah blah blah. Well, we will follow the realignment news as it as it continues. But we did want to uh, touch on what this means for for the Big Ten and for the Pac-12 and for UCLA and USC. Um, we are now going to uh, dive into the, the coaching changes, um, that, that, we had, uh, so far this season or this off season. Uh, but we'll, we'll do that here in a second. First, check this out.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate, isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. If you need to hire, you need indeed.
1: All right, let's uh, let's dive into some of these coaching changes. As I mentioned before, there have been 37 head coaching jobs turnover so far this off season. Uh, we're probably at a point where jobs aren't going to come open unless there's another situation where um, you know there's a cascading effect where if Notre Dame hires a sitting head coach. You could see that that number tick up, but we are probably past the point where new vacancies are just being created for the sake of creating new vacancies. Um, 37 overall, 10 of them within Power Five Leagues, two more in the American, two more in the Big West. Uh, Those are kind of the major conferences. I don't know how we wanna define major conferences. In this world of realignment, I don't even know who's in the American anymore, Joe. Um, but there there were it was a busy summer ultimately. There, there are zero job changes in the SEC. That is significant. Um, but you still saw Florida State, Clemson, USC is I guess a big brand still, uh, still some big programs turning over. Uh, but it was a lot of movement really uh, at lower levels, uh, some movement uh with some major jobs. Uh, but not maybe some of the biggest jobs opening that that at points during the season it looked like. Um, there might be you saw some people projecting three, four SEC jobs might open and and in the end zero.
2: Yeah, I guess I didn't realize that in the moment that no SEC openings. I guess i I just hadn't taken the full accounting of it. but yeah, I mean when you talk about the some of the decisions that were made, uh you know uh, late in the regular season missouri decides to run it back with with steve beezer you know um you know uh, brad bohan in alabama coming back you know those in how you know uh, where those guys were i I don't know i can't say for certain but those were uh, you know names that got tossed around as hey depending on how the season goes like you could see that happening and and those guys get another year and obviously mike bianco winning a national title like that takes him you know that uh, that certainly takes him off the hot seat so uh, you know, you add all that together and you get what you get in the SEC. And, you know, we... Um, we know I will say to- about
1: <laughs> the SEC before we before we move on here, and Millie has thoughts about the SEC. Yeah, Millie can maybe go first if she Is, it, <laughs> is that, um, you know, the SEC is a place where people are always talking about all sorts of jobs. Like you mentioned Brad Bohannon, a, a coach who I don't believe at any point was in trouble this year. But because people see the way SEC jobs operate in other sports, they assume that because the SEC really cares about baseball that they operate in baseball in the same way. And like, look, they do pull the trigger relatively quickly there, but it's also like, even at most SEC schools, like you're operating barely in the black or still not quite in the black. So if you have to pay a uh, buyout for any of these schools, short of like a very few, it's just a real prohibitive thing. And so you saw Nick Mungione's name get thrown around. You saw you know, some people talked about Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss at various times this year. Well, like, I mean, the thing is with, with a lot of these, it was just like, well, that's almost certainly not going to happen because of the contract situation. Um, and uh, that is ultimately what maybe saves some of those guys and, or not, you know, I don't know, but um, it, it's a very real deal. Uh, even at the SEC level that paying a buyout is not in baseball. It's not like paying a buyout in in football or basketball.
2: Well, I was also heartened um, by some of those decisions because I get, I get, and I understand it's the business. So I'm just like, uh, I almost used a phrase. that's kind of vulgar. So I'll use, try to find a different phrase Um, screaming into the void um, about. um, So I know I'm screaming into the void about this kind of thing, but I, I get, eternally frustrated by the fact that, you know, you've got programs that don't really want to, don't really want to commit and in the sec being fully committed means something different than anywhere else. Right. Um, but you, you've got programs all over the country that don't, are kind of like half in half out and then they, they aren't winning enough. So they fire a coach and they bring in a new coach and like magically they're more committed. Like the coach starts getting things right. Like facility improvements or increased salary pool for assistance and yada, 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 where it's like, well you know, the last guy might've been able to do some things if you'd have been willing to do that. Right. And so you look at places like, um, Missouri and Alabama, and I think people might be surprised to talk about Alabama in this way, but because they are what they are in football, I think that some assumptions get made, but in terms of baseball, like they are pretty far down in terms of, of, you know, what they are commitment, at least with what we can see publicly, right. Salaries, things of that nature. Um, and then Mizzou, we know what Mizzou is or isn't within the SEC. And so the idea that schools like that, which don't have, I mean, Alabama has some history, but we're talking 20 plus years ago now. Um, you know, I think it, 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 the further we get, the more we realize like Mitch Gaspar did a really good job there for a while. Um, um, we look at what those programs are, the idea that they were just going to cycle through and find some other guy with the current level of investment. thats in, That's in italics as I speak. Um, And have the results be wildly different, I think is just kind of foolhardy. So like, I always feel like now whether these guys get more investment remains to be seen. But just the idea of changing a coach for the sake of changing a coach without changing any of the other factors around them, I think in some cases is kind of lunacy. Are there some cases where that's the right move? Absolutely. Sure. But there are some cases, I think Mizzou in particular, right, where it's like we know what what the struggle is there. The idea that you just are going to go find somebody and like, is there a guy out there that could probably pull it off? Sure. But you're really looking for a needle in a haystack there. Um, So not making a move there, I was a little bit heartened by just the idea of like, we're not just going to make a change to make a change and send the next guy into the breach to try to pull off something that's ultimately just going to be extremely difficult without some additional assistance.
1: Now all of that said, uh, it is very rare that the SEC doesn't have coaching changes. Uh, It's a league where either you win or you get out, pretty generally. Uh, So I would, I would expect that any of these, you just can't expect multiple years in a row of this. So I don't think this is the signaling of anything particularly new in terms of trends. Um, I just think this is a year where things hit a certain way and we got to where we got in the sec where there are no new coaches going into next year it it, it happens every once in a while this happens to be one of those years um the same could definitely not be said for the acc which is pretty traditionally the second best baseball league in the country in the sec uh the the two biggest changes happened or all the changes are relatively connected. Clemson fired Monty Lee, Florida state fired Mike Martin jr. And then hired link Jarrett away from Notre Dame, creating a third ACC opening. Uh, The the Notre Dame opening remains an opening. Clemson hired Eric Bakich, Eric Bakich and link Jarrett. You know, we don't grade hires for any number of reasons, but if we did, I have to imagine, Joe, that those two would be the highest-graded hires of this of this year. They, it's hard to imagine anyone else, you know, Eric Bakich has played for a national championship at Michigan. His track record at Maryland and at Michigan is of winning a lot at programs that don't have as many resources or advantages as Clemson. He's going to a place where he is familiar. Uh, he was a volunteer assistant under Jack Leggett there uh, for a season. Uh, he helped Tim Corbin build Vanderbilt. Uh, that's why he left Clemson. He left with, with Corbin to, to go to Vanderbilt as his top assistant. Uh, so his track record is, is pretty sterling. And then Link Jarrett also has won a lot as a head coach, as an assistant coach, just took Notre Dame to the top of the ACC almost instantly upon arrival in South Bend. He only lasts three years. Uh, In South Bend, takes Notre Dame to an ACC title in 2021 and within a game of Omaha and then to Omaha uh, in 2022, and then goes back to his alma mater, a place where he also spent a year on the coaching staff um, before moving on in in his career. So those two guys, I mean, it's hard to imagine two searches finding landing on better guys than what Clemson and, and Florida
2: State were able to. I think that's right. I mean, Link Jarrett going back to Florida State is the slam dunk of slam dunks, not in terms of the results, because like like Teddy said, we don't grade these hires because you just never know. But in terms of putting, you know, pegging one person in a place, um, that is as close a, a match as you could you could get there, obviously. Um, you know, it was to the point where like we all knew kind of what the situation was when you know, uh, Florida State moved on from Mike Martin Jr. We were like, okay, well, something is probably going to have to change for this not to be Link Jarrett's job, right? And so um, that that just seems like a real plug-and-play situation, um, you know, to, to the point where Notre Dame can probably only be so upset because it was just like, well, we always knew this on the table. And, like, um, you know, we this really goes back to especially once it was clear that something was happening at Notre Dame, you know, it just kind of was like something that you thought of, like, well – unless Mike Martin Jr. goes on a run like his father, where he's here 40 years, which of course is extremely unlikely considering he's getting a little bit of a later start in his career than his father did. But um, unless that kind of thing happens, Link Jared is going to be a guy who, who comes up whenever this job comes open again, right? And so it ends up being earlier than we thought. And so here he is. And then back itch, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you there. I mean, I think we would if we had access and we don't, but if we had access to know for certain all of the opportunities that have at least run, been run by his agent um, or have been talked about or what have you, like if we were able to see that list, I think that would be enough to tell us that Clemson made a smart hire in bringing him in because he's had plenty of opportunities um to leave Michigan for other things and has chosen to stay at Michigan because he was comfortable, but also because he was waiting for something that he felt was right. And so the idea that, he's turned down the places that he's more than likely turned down to end up in Clemson. I think tells you, tells you what you need to know about how he feels about the potential there and about, you know uh, what Clemson was able to provide him um, for this job. Uh, It would, it would lead you to feel pretty good about the way things uh, should go here in Clemson in the next several years.
1: Clemson and Florida state are, it's really hard to order ACC jobs um those are two of the top ones though and you know look florida state was only mike martin jr only had three years of florida state and one of them was 2020 so i I don't want to say like well they haven't won the acc in however long like whatever things didn't work for monty lee at clemson it's been a long time since clemson has operated at the level that they think they need to be operating at uh their athletic director uh, in, after firing Monty Lee when he met with the media, said that he considers it to be a top 15 to 20 job nationally. And so that, to me, says, like, all right, so they they basically, they fired Jack Leggett seven years ago, eight years ago, however long ago that was, because uh, he wasn't getting to Omaha anymore, wasn't winning regionals anymore, and then Monty Lee also didn't do that and now missed the tournament in back-to-back years. So first of all, Backage needs to correct that but they are still believing that this is a team that should be in contention to go to the College World Series every year. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, like, are, are you gonna give them more things? And, um, you know, Clemson, I, I think, is committed to, to backage at a level that maybe is, it is gonna push them further towards that because um, you know, that's what they needed to do to hire him away from Michigan. And, you know, so I'll be interested to see where these two programs go under, under Bakich and, and Jarrett, uh, not just from a like, well, of course you are, Teddy, they're Clemson and Florida State, but what does that mean for the rest of the ACC? Uh, you know, what does that mean uh, for, the, for the power structure? Uh, because you now have, have these two guys taking over two of the, the more established programs. Uh, ready to challenge Miami, North Carolina, you know whoever else is Virginia now, Louisville at, at the upper echelon of the ACC. All right, let's uh, let's go to the Big Twelve. There were two two changes there. Baylor hired Mitch Thompson, former Baylor assistant, uh, but he was hired away from McLennan Junior College, uh, where he won the national title in 2021. A uh, bit of an unusual hire; nobody had been hired um, from a junior college to the big 12 and directly in more than 30 years. And look, he's a little different in that he spent a lot of time at Baylor under Steve Smith. So it's not like you're hiring a, a younger junior college coach that doesn't know what he's doing in the big 12, uh, but still, uh, a a bit of an unusual place to, to look, uh, if you're Baylor and then Kansas hires, Dan Fitzgerald. Uh, who spent several years as an assistant at Dallas Baptist and the last season as an assistant uh, at LSU. He is a a first time head coach, as is uh, as is Mitch Thompson. So uh, Baylor and Kansas um, in the new Big 12, Joe, I mean, once Oklahoma and Texas leave in a few years. Tech, TCU, Oklahoma State, we we figure that those are going to be the programs at the top of the, the Big 12. Uh, but there should be room beyond them. And and maybe Mitch Thompson and and Dan Fitzgerald can help the Jayhawks and and the bears get into newer, better positioning in in the new look big 12.
2: Yeah. I think that's what this is about. And they're, they're on two different planes, right. Um, Where Baylor is certainly the floor is higher there that, I mean, the bottom kind of fell out this past season, but uh, relative to expectation, but uh, that they certainly have a higher floor than, than what KU does, but, but KU also trying to do kind of a similar thing where it's like, let's raise the floor. Let's, let's get up and get somebody again. It's been a while since they've been to the postseason. that, you know, they, uh, when, when, when things were going well under rich price, they were that kind of quintessential program that would basically do a full tear down and rebuild every three or four years where they, they'd recruit a group together and that recruit would that group would get older together. And by the time they were juniors and seniors, they would pop up and get to a regional and they basically have to start over again. Um, you know, they missed a couple cycles recently. So for KU, I think it's like, can we kickstart those cycles a little faster? And I think, you know, Dan Fitzgerald is, an, is a really interesting name there. I did, I did radio in Kansas a couple of weeks ago and they asked me about him. And I said, look, I, that job is tough enough that I think there are a lot of really talented coaches that would not work out there. And I'm doing air quotes, Um, by traditional measures. However, he's a pretty good bet though. Um, You look at the Dallas Baptist teams that he helped recruit. That is, that is, I think that's the most, uh, I think it goes without saying, most intriguing thing on his resume relative to this job is you look at the Dallas Baptist rosters that he helped put together. And I think it's easy to assume, well, yeah, they're in Texas and they're in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. Like they're just going to recruit a bunch of DFW kids and like, that's ready-made let's go. It really wasn't that. I mean, they did plenty of that, sure, but it's junior college kids, it's high school kids, it's kids from Midwest, it's kids from uh, the Deep South, it's kids from the West Coast. Like He was very, very good at talent acquisition from a lot of different places. And if you're KU, you can't just like hang out in Kansas City, especially now that A. Van Horn in Arkansas just kind of gets whoever they want in Kansas City. Um, you, you really can't just hang out in Kansas City, which is a good, not great baseball hotbed um in the scheme of things um and get the guys you are going to need to become a regional team like you're going to have to be creative and that's something that he did at dbu really really well um so i'm intrigued by that to at least get ku to a point where they're in the worst years they're pesky because right now recently in their worst years they're just not competitive so i think you know what they're trying to do there is get to a place where in their worst years they're pesky And in their best years, they're a regional team. And, oh, by the way, can we also make that one out of every three years instead of one out of every four or five years, which is kind of what they were on before. So we'll have to – obviously, that is a long tail on that. I don't think that's an immediate thing. I mean, with the transfer portal, like, they have done some moving in the transfer portal. So, like, you know, who knows? But that's more likely a a long-term thing there. Um, Baylor is a similar hire to me in that – well, I guess it's different in this way, that the most profound thing about this hire to me is that this has kind of long been a, um, this is like a fan fi- a Baylor fan fiction novel that Mitch Thompson gets this job because when Steve Smith was was let go before they hired Coach Rod, um, Mitch Thompson's name came up very quickly. People still have a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings about his time as a Baylor assistant and why not? They had a lot of success. He went to Omaha as a member of that staff. Um, obviously the success at McLennan, including national titles speaks for itself. And Oh, by the way, he never left McLennan, For those who don't know Baylor's campus and McLennan's campus are seven miles away from each other. Like he never really left. Um, and so this is kind of, like I said, a fan fiction for Baylor fans. They've always kind of wanted this, a certain subset of them, I should say have always kind of wanted this. And now they're going to get that opportunity. He's a little bit of a non-traditional hire. You mentioned the Juco part. He's also in the grand scheme of things, a little bit older than a lot of your, your typical coaching hires. So he is different in that way. But if you're just looking for a guy that just that just makes sense, like he's your guy. Um, But I think to your point, these two tires are similar in that it's, hey, we're looking at a little bit of a different Big 12 here in the next few years. Like, what can we do now to start building to put ourselves in positions to be a have rather than a have not in however the new Big 12 shakes out in three or four years? One thing about both of these hires is that they both have
1: pretty significant junior college ties. Like before Fitz went to DBU, he was a junior college coach, um, spent a few years as a junior college head coach. Obviously, Mitch Thompson spent the last several years at McLennan. Um, In the current environment, obviously, the portal has changed the way Programs are recruiting. And one of those ways, it's changing in many ways. And one of the ways in which it's changed it is that some places are just focusing less on junior college players because, well, you can get a four-year transfer uh, who has some experience, who's the older player, uh, but you can just get them as a four-year transfer who can play right away as opposed to having to go through junior college. So some of those players that used to be at junior colleges are now just transferring. With the experience that Thompson and Fitz are bringing, will they dive into the junior college ranks at a higher level than other places? Just how are they going to play that? I, I find that to be uh, to be one of the more fascinating parts of their hires of how they intend to build their programs and, and all the rest of that. So that's something that we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out. But um, interesting, interesting hires, uh, just. The whole Big Twelve right now, as Texas and Oklahoma prepare to leave, uh, very much in an interesting spot. Uh, So we'll we'll see where where these two guys uh, are able to take Kansas and and Baylor. All right, out west, uh, there were two hires. Southern Cal hired Andy Stanekovitz, as I mentioned, uh, away from Grand Canyon and washington hired jason kelly who was the pitching coach most recently at lsu previously at arizona state and prior to that spent uh several years at washington as the pitching coach under lindsey Meggs, who retired uh following the season uh, let, we let's just address i guess usc i right? since we, we spent some time on them before joe do you think andy Stakowitz is the guy to take them to any level of prominence, not not all the way back to where they were in the 70s. Of course, that's not coming back. But uh, you know, here, here's a guy who has a very extensive resume. Was very successful as the Grand Canyon coach, guiding the Lopes uh, from Division Two to Division One, and now back-to-back NCAA tournament appearances there. Um, previously, has a lengthy pro ball record. He played in the major leagues. Uh, he was a farm director. He he did a lot of things in pro ball. Uh, can he be the guy that solves
2: the the USC conundrum? I certainly think he's got a good shot. I mean, it's it's kind of unfair to him that USC had somewhat in, in the baseball sense because none of these coaching searches are as public as the football searches ultimately are, but fairly public dalliances with the likes of Andrew Chekets and uh, Troy Julewitzki that amounted to nothing. Um, so... In those kind of those are always tough situations because you very publicly are not known as not the first choice or even the second choice, and we we have to assume was probably not the third or fourth choice. So, you know, that's a tough situation to come into. But I think it's unfair to Andy Stankiewicz because what he did at Grand Canyon is different than what you see with a lot of mid majors. So you compare it a little bit to uh, Jason Gill coming from LMU, where. Jason Gill was a head coach at LMU for, I think, a decade. I think it was literally just 10 seasons. Um, and he improved that program. I'm certainly not saying he didn't. But more or less, it was kind of the same program for most of that 10 years. And it just so happened in his last year at LMU, the team popped. And they they win the WCC automatic bid. They play in a regional. They actually play well in that regional, get to a regional final. He ends up at USC. What Andy Stankowicz has done at, at Grand Canyon is kind of continue to grow that program. Now they've been good basically since they came up to division one, they were in a lot of ways. I wrote about this earlier this season, in three strikes, they were really ready made to be successful in division one, but they've gone from kind of being good in the, within the whack, you know, but not really good nationally to, okay, now we're, now we're really competing nationally. Oh, now we're getting legitimate draft prospect players. Like, Daniel Avedia, their best pitcher, was a guy who was drafted by the Cubs. Uh, Jacob Wilson, their shortstop, um, who is in the portal now, but like, you know, I guess it's kind of just like an emergency option for Grand Canyon. Uh, He wants to return, but, um, you know, he's playing for Collegiate Team USA right now. So they have continued to, and then I think you cap it off in the 2022 season by they earn an at large bid which is a hard thing to do in a league like the WAC. We talked about that during the season. So this is not a case where it's a mid-major coach who's just kind of been like steadying the ship and they just happened to, you know, they had a a, a breakout year. Like, no, this, this thing was continuing to grow. Um, it, it, year over year, they were getting better. And so USC is a different animal. We know that. Um, but I think with what he's shown and it, it, having to take this USC job, especially speaking of the portal, like he's basically going to have a fresh roster. Um, he's going to have to treat this a little like he treated being at grand Canyon. It's different. They're not starting literally from scratch, but like in a lot of ways they might as well be They're at the bottom of the pack. 12. Uh, most of their best players are gone off the roster. He's going to have to basically start from scratch and he's got experience doing that. So um, is this a splashy hire? No. Um, is it a solid one that I think at a bare minimum raises the floor? Absolutely. And I, I do like the chances that he's able to raise the ceiling there and do something that hasn't been done at, at USC in a long time.
1: It's uh, you know it's a very difficult job, obviously on some level in, in other ways it, it shouldn't be that hard, but it, it in some ways is, is very difficult. So you know he, he's got the next crack at it. I, I do like the resume. Uh, everyone is saying the right things about this hire. Um, so I, I will be interested to see if uh, if he is able to, to unlock what what it takes to be successful there. Uh, Where so many other guys have failed, but he has a lot of the right experience for this. Um, He 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 certainly built something at Grand Canyon that is not easy to do there, and now he'll be looking to do the same thing at usc. Jason Kelly, uh, if you look at Washington's best years under Lindsey Megs. Basically coincide with Jason Kelly's time on on staff there, and I'm not suggesting that he was the sole reason why they were good there. But he knows what it takes to win at UW. He knows what it takes to to recruit there. Uh, so I, I really like that hire uh, for Washington. I, I I think he has a lot of a lot of reasons to believe that he can be successful in Seattle. Which also, it's not the easiest job. I mean, there's a lot of things about Washington that make it seem like it should be should be better than what they've been if you look at historically what they are but it, it just hasn't been that way and some of that is certainly like climate and access to to talent versus the rest of the pack 12 and all the rest of that but i think that that he has a chance to navigate the uh the situation there because it's it is one that that requires some navigation otherwise washington uh, you know, I mean, there's a reason why they, they 2018 was their first trip to Omaha, and, and why that they haven't been to back to the NCAA tournament since then. So, uh, I, I look forward to seeing what he's able to do uh, now in charge of uh, of the Huskies, and, and with both of these jobs, of course, the changing landscape around them is going to uh, is going to affect them. Obviously, USC going to the Big Ten very directly affects that job, but the uncertainty of the Pac-12 right now. Affects Washington, so uh, that that is something that was not true when uh, Jason Kelly took the job. It was already true when when Andy Stakewitz, um finalized, I guess, taking the job. But when he started talking to them about it, I I, I doubt that was something that that was on his radar at all. So uh, just the change in realities of college sports are, are going to affect how how their ten years go there. I am sure. All right, so the Big Ten. Uh had a few changes as well. Bill moziello is in at Ohio State, former TCU assistant, long time assistant coach at many programs around the country, spent some time in Pro Ball, was Mike Trout's minor league manager for like two and a half or three and a half years, something like that. Um, I think two and a half years. And so he goes to Ohio State replacing Greg Beals. Uh we've got uh, an opening. Um at uh at northwestern that was created a year ago when um when spencer allen retired uh they went with an interim coach for the 2022 season and this year hired jim foster away from army uh love jim foster love that hire we've had him on the podcast here i don't know how much we're going to dive into jim foster to northwestern but if you're if you're curious go into the archives uh find our jim foster interview i always fantastic to have him on the podcast and we did so uh just a little i don't know eight months ago or so sometime in in the last off season and then michigan uh with eric backage going to clemson they hire tracy smith uh who spent the last year out of coaching after getting fired from arizona state a year ago after seven seasons in phoenix Uh, much more successful as the indiana head coach He is the one that took the Hoosiers to Omaha in 2013 and had them as the number four national seed in 2014. That one, Joe is fascinating.
2: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, That's the one that uh, not out of left field necessarily, but just kind of, um, that was just like a, just a, you know, just a wow, you know, with with what they did there. Um, cause that is an interesting, that is interesting hire. And, you know, whether, no matter what you think about, he did or didn't do at arizona state i think that is a little bit of a rorschach test his time at arizona state because you can look at it a few different ways we've talked about that you know you could you could see the positives and the negatives in equal measure but there's no denying what he did at indiana and so that that one is really really fascinating um i think that's a that's a on on the scale of things a good hire for michigan certainly has a high high ceiling for for what can be done there um yeah northwestern with jim foster just quickly Obviously, he knows how to have success when you've got a lot of limitations. It's a different set of limitations at Northwestern, obviously, but limitations nonetheless. So I think that's intriguing there. Um, and Bill Mocello at Ohio State, like, you know, longtime assistant, you you, you kind of laid out his resume there. So nothing is going to happen on a coll- in a college baseball program or on the field in college baseball that he's not seen before, um, but never been a head coach. And you know, I do wonder if Ohio State is one of those jobs you know better than I, where you kind of maybe have to be an Ohio guy to some degree. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. People, you know, obviously his resume speak for itself. Like he wouldn't have the stops he had um, if he wasn't very, very good at what he does. Every, you know, that 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 part is clear. Um, but this was one that was kind of like just uh, this one was a little more out of left field when if you'd have told me at the beginning of the cycle, those two parties, Bill Mustello and Ohio State, would pair up. So um, I think of the of these three, that is the one that I have questions about that I'm gonna be fascinated okay. to see how it plays out. Michigan and Ohio State both kind of zigged. Um, Tracy
1: Smith makes a lot of sense to talk to. That's a guy that had a ton of success in the Big Ten and right um you know took indiana at omaha and they both talked to him and ohio state passed and michigan did not um or it didn't work out at ohio state i should say works out at michigan i'm not surprised he's back in the midwest uh i am a little surprised it's michigan that's a place that you often hear like you want to be a michigan man in in all caps and um They've gone away from that with their baseball hires, obviously it's it's less important for that than it is clearly for football, um, or even basketball. But Tracy Smith is not a Michigan man at all and you know he's uh he's an Ohio native he, he coached it in Miami of Ohio his alma mater and then went to Indiana and um, then went out West and I, you know it, it'll be very interesting he he is he's is very accomplished. Um, I think a return to the Midwest will serve him well. Uh, he will recruit very well. That is one thing that I can guarantee. Uh, and you know, we'll we'll see if he is the guy that is able to take Michigan to the next level. Like Eric Bakich did a great job taking them to where they are today. Can now Tracy Smith advance that? We'll, we'll find out. Uh, Moziello, I it, it's it's incredible. He's coached like almost literally from coach to, coast to coast. Uh, never been a head coach, as as you said. Now gets that opportunity. I don't know how much it matters to be an Ohioan. It's certainly something that has been prioritized at various times in Columbus. Um, I the we'll see. I I don't know what to think. He's never been a head coach. We just don't have a whole lot to go off on. I do know he's one of the best offensive minds in the country, um, and you know that that's something different. That's something he can bring to the table. And I I expect Ohio State's offense will get a lot better, uh, kind of in the immediate even going into next season. I, I would expect uh, them to to hit at a different level. Just that is that is what he excels in more than anything. And um, you know, then it'll be a matter of uh, of getting getting the right recruits in and, and all the rest of it and, and program building and, and all of these things about being a head coach that you know we can't know until you do, but. Uh, he, he certainly is a, is a great offensive coach and, and I expect that to, uh, to translate. Uh, okay. So that is the, the power five jobs that changed hands, Joe. There are a lot of other jobs, 27 on their openings. Uh, what else intrigued you from, uh, from, from the, the coaching carousel this summer?
2: Uh, a couple of rapid fire ones, Clay Van Hook going to UT Arlington. Um, UT Arlington is a program that does have some potential there. They've had a lot of, Good players come through there. Hunter Pence, probably chief among them. Um, Darren Thomas was well-respected, but there just wasn't as much winning as you might have expected. Now they're moving back to the WAC, probably a more um, winnable situation for them and than, than it was in the Sun Belt. Um, Clay Van Hook also checks pretty much all the boxes you'd want checked. I mean, played for Augie Garrido, coached for Wayne Graham. Um, you know, coached at a good program in McNeese. Uh, you know, now coached under Skip Johnson, Oklahoma. Just came a couple of games away from a national title as an assistant. Like he really does check a lot of the boxes. You're looking at relatively young guy. Um, so, you know, he really does check a lot of boxes. I'll be fascinated to see what that ultimately comes of. And then the other one is FIU. You know, Rich Witten coming from VCU is just a very different coach in terms of background and what have you than Myrtle Melendez was. Um, we've talked about before how it just, we thought that was going to work at FIU for Merville Melendez and it just didn't. And so we'll kind of see if maybe somebody from a little bit of a different, uh, point of view uh, coming in and can kind of get that program going. I think we all, even knowing kind of the, the background stuff that makes FIU a tough job. Um, I think we kind of understand the potential there with that, with that program. So that, that's another one that fascinates me.
1: A uh, couple that stand out to me. Carrick Jackson returns to coaching. Uh, he spent the last couple years, year and a half, I guess, uh, as the president of the newly formed MLB Draft League, uh, Summer League. Uh, he won a lot at Southern uh, in, in his first stop as a head coach. And now he is going to Memphis. That'll be interesting to me. And uh, that's a bit of a I, I, trend is too strong. I, I do have to total all of this up, but he he got uh so Carrick jackson is black he got memphis Blake beamer uh was hired at butler chris dominguez was hired at Bellerman, manny roman was hired at um fairly dickinson there were several minority hires this year um i think that nets out into a more positive place for for minority hires still none in the power five leagues but Carrick jackson uh, in the American and Blake Beamer in um, in the Big East, I do think is not insignificant joining Edwin Thompson in the Big East there. Um, so I, I think that's not insignificant, um, and, and I I will be writing about that in the weeks to come. Uh, but I care specifically to Memphis is is particularly interesting. Uh, that that's a place that a lot of there's a lot of things to like about that job. A lot of reasons why it might be able to, to move forward especially in the the new american and i think carrick brings uh you know brings a lot of energy to to uh to the tigers all right that's going to do it for us today we covered a lot of ground uh wound up being very newsy over the last couple weeks not all of our uh off-season podcasts are quite this newsy but this one definitely was uh glad to be able to run through all of those coaching changes glad to be able to dive into uh into the realignment but especially glad that we we were able to cover the the coaching changes finally uh so hopefully you guys enjoyed that if you did remember you can subscribe to the baseball america college podcast on your favorite podcasting app apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify wherever you get your podcast uh subscribe to the baseball america podcast uh hit the follow button whatever it may be you can find us on twitter i'm at ted cahill joe is at joe healy ba and all of the written work is over at baseballamerica.com, a lot to check out there, especially in advance of the draft, which is coming up here pretty quickly now. So uh, if you're trying to read all 500 scouted reports that Carlos Collazo and the rest of the draft team have, uh, have written for the top draft prospects, you, you probably need to get started now uh, as, uh, as, as that, is, that is coming sooner than, uh, than you might think during the off season we go once a week here on this podcast so we will see you next week on the baseball america college podcast um we'll uh we'll find something to talk about i think probably draft related again that that's uh that's coming pretty quick here so uh we appreciate you guys sticking around into the off season and uh we will talk to you next time here thank you for listening for joe i'm teddy we'll see you next week